Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we look at ways that life has survived in some extraordinary circumstances. Now the very early history of the Earth, and even later on, Earth managed to go through some big climate crises where there either wasn't enough heat or maybe it was too cold to survive. Plus, how did life manage to survive on meteorites, or in fact thrive, on the surface of a meteorite better than it does here on Earth? All this week and more as we tackle the strange tales of life. Now, when you think about the early Earth, you imagine something that had a lot of liquid water floating around, but not a lot of life. And we always focus on the behaviour on Earth and what's happening on Earth leading to the generation of life. But as the astronomer Carl Sagan pointed out, At that point in time, from our knowledge about what the sun, what we are orbiting here on Earth, what the sun was able to produce, well, Earth could have been, or perhaps should have been, very, very different. In fact, the sun was outputting a lot less heat than it was now. And that's because, just like the Earth was young many billions of years ago, so was the sun. And when the sun was young, it wasn't producing as much luminosity as it is producing today. And if you factor in how much extra energy the sun is getting today compared to back then, you can start to get a bit surprised. How Earth managed not to be entirely frozen over at all. And this in fact is what Carl Sagan referred to as the faint young sun paradox. When you calculate the heat budgets and evaluate all the luminosity generated by the sun and how much of that was gonna reach Earth Earth should have been pretty much entirely frozen over. So what kept Earth from freezing? Because it obviously didn't. It obviously had liquid oceans at that point in time. And when we go back through the geological and biological records, we're able to confirm that. But why? What kept Earth from freezing? There wasn't enough energy from the sun to do that. University of Michigan researcher all the way back in 1987, James Walker, first proposed a theory that a methane-rich atmosphere could have helped keep the Earth nice and warm. Now, methane-rich atmosphere, in conjunction with a lot of large-scale iron ore deposits, would have helped trap that heat and keep the atmosphere warm enough to keep Earth's atmosphere warm, even though there wasn't much sun coming in. But what does iron and methane have to do with each other, and how did this iron and methane get there in the first place? And James Walker's theory in 1987 provided a mechanism that could explain it, but the how and why has gone unknown for a very long period of time. And that's what researchers like Catherine Thompson, who's the lead author of this study, and other researchers from University of British Columbia, Universities of Alberta, Tumidjin, Automata de Barcelona, and Georgia Institute of Technology, have all worked together and published in the journal Science Advances. And what they did is actually involving one lake, far away in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and how it can help shed light on pre-Cambrian Earth. Now, what these researchers were studying is the bacterium that lives in this particular lake in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's called Lake Kivu. Now, the interesting part about Lake Kivu is that it's spectacularly iron-rich. It's, in fact, home to some of the largest iron ore deposits. And one of the reasons why this lake is so fascinating is because it creates a special proving ground that's actually, from a geological standpoint, pretty similar 
to what we had on Precambrian Earth. Now, what they've found in this lake is actually some pretty special microbes. Now, these microbes have some, some special features that enable them to convert sunlight into rusty iron materials and leftover cellular biomass. And they do this without relying on oxygen at all. And the interesting part about that biomass, well, what does that extracellular biomass, that leftover detritus, do? Well, other microbes come and feed on that biomass. And as a result, those other microbes then produce methane. That methane is then what gets out into the atmosphere. So effectively, there's bacteria that chomp down and then secrete iron ore. That iron ore then gets chomped on by other bacteria, which then go on to consume that and the extra biomass and produce methane. And you get all these iron ore minerals just getting dumped out onto, deposited onto the lake bed, the floor of the lake, or in the case, seafloor, if you want to imagine the oceans having the same thing. And it leads to these seafloor iron deposits. Now, once they've separated from their rusty material mineral products, the bacteria go on to feed other microbes, as we said, that make methane. There's all this extracellular biomass leads to the extra generation of methane. And the telltale sign that this has all happened is, of course, the iron ore remnants left behind. And that's exactly what James Walker was proposing all the way back in 1987. So this is some pretty amazing stuff. We're using modern geomicrobiological tools and techniques to help piece together what actually happened in the pre-Cambrian oceans billions of years ago in early Earth. It is likely that some of these microbes were chowing down on all this extra iron ore that was around in early Earth. And all that iron was left as deposits, which we can see in the fossil record today. But the process would have led to all these extra bacteria and microbes, which could consume them and thus produce methane. So now if we have the food source for the, and we know that these microbes would produce methane as a result, then we can say that, yes, that would have dumped a whole lot of extra methane into the atmosphere. And that would have transformed our atmosphere and kept it warm enabling life to flourish and develop. Now, it's great to think about the ways that Earth has changed in the past and understand the important role of such tiny creatures in shaping our entire planet and all life that was to come. But it's also something that could be thought of to help remove CO2 from the atmosphere at the moment to help face our current climate challenges. So bacterial and mineral interactions can be another source, another tool in our toolbox to help tackle climate change. Because if they can help change climate in one way to make it easier for life to survive, they can certainly work the other. But of course, we need to know a lot more about these processes in the first place before we can even contemplate something like that. Now, this is some great work led by Catherine Thompson from the University of British Columbia, published in the journal Science Advances. Now, the faint young sun in our early Earth's history isn't the only time life on Earth faced the challenges of being too cold. 
Around 700 million years ago, the Earth experienced its most severe ice age of its young history, which pretty much threatened the survival of much of the planet's life. Now, what was the main reason for this threat, you may ask? Well, at that point in time, there was an awful amount of life in our oceans. And okay, well, what happens when the Earth gets suddenly super cold? Well, a lot of that ocean gets frozen over and covered, and that can be a big problem. Not for what you might think of the cold, but rather because it restricts the supply of oxygen. And when there's no oxygen in the water, then that can lead to all that marine life dying out. Even the most simple of organisms, like a sponge, still require oxygen in the water. So how did life manage to survive this great big freeze of snowball Earth? And what impact did it have on evolution? Well, a bunch of researchers from a large number of universities, including McGill University, University of Melbourne, Nanjing University, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and even Yale University, all worked together and tried to piece together what happened in this early Earth stage by examining geochemistry. And what they were looking for is what could we could study from the remnants of these glaciers today. See, when all these large glaciers were formed, they left behind huge trails that we can see in rock deposits. And also we can look by turning our eyes and attention to iron ore. Now, by studying the chemistry of these iron ore formations in these rocks, the researchers are able to piece together and extrapolate out the levels of oxygen in our oceans from around 700 million years ago. And that is pretty exciting to think about. These large iron ore deposits and rocks can tell us a lot about what actually happened so long ago. So the evidence suggests that although much of the oceans during this big deep freeze would have been uninhabitable due to lack of oxygen, in areas where those big ice sheets ran aground and started to float, there would have been a small amount of melting. And this meant that some of that ice would have melted and supplied oxygenated meltwater. And that creates what the researchers called a glacial oxygen pump, where air bubbles trapped inside the glacial ice are released out into the water as it melts, enriching that water with oxygen. That water then circulates up and down and provides life to those living around it. Now, this study is actually pretty fascinating because it doesn't show exactly how the primitive eukaryotes, the small organisms living in there, where they got their food from, but it does show where they got their oxygen from, which they definitely need to survive. And if the eukaryotes had oxygen to survive, then other things that they could consume for food likely also survived around them. But we need further research to explain and explore that full food web in this ice-frozen ecosystem. But it also actually helped explain not just where the oxygen came from and how these things may have survived, but also why all of a sudden in the geological record, after being missing for billions of years, we started seeing all of these iron ore deposits starting to form in different places. And that's because these were getting left behind in this meltwater process. And so it's pretty exciting to think about what we can learn by studying the remnants and trails of glaciers from millions of years ago and how that kept some early life on Earth just ticking on with just enough oxygen it needed to survive at a time when the Earth was frozen over. And we can see that today in our rocks, all the way in the glacial deposits in Australia, Namibia, and California. 
We can get information from the indigenous people of those areas about where these formations can be seen. We can study the chemistry in those and piece together what happened 700 million years ago. And this is some great work published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science Journal about how early life on Earth managed to survive a really big freeze. Now, one thing that's been pretty common in all of Earth's history is that we get bombarded by all kinds of things from space, such as meteorites. And these meteorites can, on a small scale, lead to like a nice, beautiful shooting star, or maybe a tiny little crater landing in someone's backyard, or they can lead to extinction-wide events like the Chicxulub crater or other ones in northern Canada, which can rapidly change the entire environment around them and that of the entire planet. But we don't often think about what happens with life on those meteorites and what might be coming raining down on us from space. Now, researchers from the University in Vienna, led by astrobiologist Tatiana Milosevic, have been looking at how microbes or microorganisms may survive on these meteorites or asteroids as they hurtle through space and land on Earth and what impact that may have had on life on Earth. And what they did was they took a sample of a meteorite, terrestrial material, the meteorite Northwest Africa 1172, NWA1172. And they took that little piece of meteorite and took one commonly found extreme piece of bacteria, otherwise known as the extreme metallophilic archaeon, Metallosephira cedula. And they combined these two things to investigate and understand how microbial life could thrive and survive on something as extreme as a meteorite. Now we know for a fact that life is amazing at finding ways to survive in some of the most extreme materials around or conditions. We call these extremophiles and this is one of them. One microorganism that we have discovered that loves to thrive off incredibly metallic environments. Now M. Sedula rapidly colonized the meteoric material. In fact, it actually worked better on colonizing this meteorite than if you put it on normal minerals of terrestrial origin. In fact, this microbe seemed specifically designed to thrive on this deposited mineral source from space. And that is pretty amazing to think about. This microorganism was actually better at living and thriving on something that should have been in space rather than here on Earth. And this is kind of an exciting piece of astrobiology, because when we try and understand if life could survive out there in space, we often get caught up in imagining aliens or other types of things living on a planet. But it's entirely possible that there is all forms of organic and inorganic life living on the surfaces of these asteroids or other meteorites or comets. Because when they looked at this interface between the meteorite's inorganic material and the microbial cell, they actually watched this microbe chow down and consume all that iron, 
iron on the surface. And what it actually tells us is that these microbes are not able to just survive on meteorites, but they're also able to transform and change those meteorite minerals, just like they do with minerals here on Earth, leading to all kinds of change of the surface chemistry. And that means that provided you get a, a source there to start it off, it's entirely likely that some of these microbes could survive and live in space just on the meteorites themselves, provided they have enough of whatever they need to survive, in this case, iron ore to chow down on. But these kind of extremophiles can be living and hurtling through space and they don't care because as far as they're concerned, it's just another place to live. And this might shed some light in the type of life we may find across the universe. Great work from the University of Vienna, published in the journal Scientific Reports by Tatiana Milosevic and a team of researchers. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From how early life managed to survive two big chills in its history, and how life manages to thrive on a meteorite by Better Than On Earth. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.